Our first lesson today comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 111. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been going through the letter of Ephesians, an electionary sermon series we're calling No Longer Strangers. And today's lectionary passage is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you may be wondering why we would have a fall kickoff on today of all days. A blessing of the backpacks, sure. A Sunday school kickoff, why not? A new sermon series, maybe, but a new season. After all, we usually begin a fall kickoff with some luminary of the preaching world like Kevin Long, but he hasn't started yet, so you're stuck with me. Just kidding. <laughs> Honestly, when we were planning this months ago, we had envisioned this as a time when the pandemic would be behind us, and we would all be unmasked with a full choir and full pews, and it would be a beautiful sunny day with no chance of rain, and we would be back to normal. Still, I suspect that at least a couple of you are wondering why we'd begin a fall kickoff with such an odd passage as today's. What do we make for instance, of the Apostle's insistence that the days in which he lives are evil. Is he just in a really crabby mood? 
Does he possess a dualistic view of the universe? Or did he just finish looking at the latest COVID statistics? Truth be told, though, that's not actually the odd part of the passage for me. To be quite honest, I suspect the days in which the Apostle speaks were no more or less evil than our own. Not evil in the sense of God forsaken. I don't think God has forsaken any time or place or people. But evil in the sense of really hard, really bad, really unfair. If you're not sure, just take a look at the evening news And there you'll find enough violence, greed, and sorrow to last a lifetime. So it's not the Apostle's description of our world as evil I find curious. Rather, it's his admonition that in the face of this evil, to make the most of time. I mean, on the surface, it all makes sense. The Apostle starts out, be very careful then how you live, which sounds something like my mom would have said to me as a teenager. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because these days are evil. I mean, everything the Apostle says makes sense. It it falls into the category of prudential wisdom, which is just a nice way of saying we've heard it all before, either from our parents or this Apostle or someone else. And so it's understandable how you could easily just blow right past that line, make the most of every opportunity, and not think twice about it. I mean, it sounds like one of those inspirational phrases you'd buy at Hobby Lobby and hang up on your kitchen. Except, that's not really the best translation of the Greek here. The verb, making the most of the time, actually means to to liberate or to set something free by buying it back, to redeem something. That's the way it's translated in the poetic King James Version, redeeming the time. And of course, to redeem something is the opposite of spending something. You buy something back when you redeem it rather than spend it. You know, our metaphor for time in our culture is very financial. We say we spend time, that time is money. Actually, it's more valuable than money. You can make more money, but you you can't make more time. Imagine every morning a bank invested $86,400 into your account. That money is yours to use however you like. The only catch is, at the end of the day, what you didn't use, you lose. It's taken out of your account. And that would get your attention. You'd be focused. You'd make sure every little penny didn't go to waste. Why? Because it's valuable. And in this way, making the most of time makes sense. Every day, God gives us 86,400 seconds And you can spend it as you like. You can invest it, or you can waste it. The principle's the same. At the end of the 24 hours, it goes away. Now, we know how to make the most of time. But redeeming time? That's trickier. 
In the American play, Our Town, at the very end, one of the dead, a woman named Emily, is given permission to come back and relive any one day of her choosing. Y'all who've seen the play, remember that she chooses her 12th birthday. And of course, the audience has a feeling it isn't going to work out, and it doesn't. Because when she returns, no one appreciates the exquisite quality of the day. On her way back to the cemetery, she cries, Do any human beings ever realize life when they live it? Every, every minute? To which the stage manager replies, No. The saints and poets, maybe. When it's over, it's over. And time becomes the door you never opened, the path you never took. It dictates a long list of opportunities, choices, and persons you will never get back. I felt it this week as I dropped my now second grader off at her new school. I thought, where did time go? We know we cannot ask God for more time. There's only 24 hours in a day. But can we ask God to redeem it? To redeem the time? And if that's not odd enough, Paul says that in the face of these evil days, you actually redeem time by singing songs, by making music. What a weird thing to advise. Or is it? Songs do have a certain power, don't they? Take the song that the Bosnian cellist Vedran Smilovic played on his cello. In 1992, he played Albinoni's Adagio for string in G minor every day for 22 days in the middle of the war raging in Sarajevo. The day before, you see a bomb had been dropped on a long line of people waiting for bread, and 22 people were killed. Feeling distraught, anguished, and outraged, Smilovich did the only thing he knew to do. He went outside and set his stool amid the rubble left by the mortar and played. For 22 days, he played one performance for each civilian who had been killed. Heedless of the bullets and bombs that continued to rain down, bent on a, playing a lament to honor those massacred, and to indict those who allowed the war in Bosnia to persist so long. By the time he was done, his audience was no longer just the residents of Sarajevo, but the entire world. Or take the women and men who participated in the Velvet Revolution. Even though the fall of the Berlin Wall took most of the world by surprise, it actually had been preceded for several months by peaceful protests from the people of Leipzig. Gathering on Monday evenings by candlelight around St. Nikolai Church, the church where Bach had composed so many of his cantatas, they would gather hold their candles, and sing. And in just a few months, their, their numbers grew from a little over a thousand people to more than 300,000, half the residents of the city. 
singing songs of hope and protest and justice until their song shook the powers of their nation and changed their world. Sometime after the fall, a journalist asked one of the commanders of the East German secret police why they hadn't crushed these protests like they had so many others. He replied, we had no contingency plans for song. Sometimes in the face of evil, all we can do is sing. Just outside the city of Prague, there's a museum on the grounds of what was once a concentration camp called Terezin. The camp was built as a way station to hold prisoners from Prague and the surrounding areas until they could be shipped off to the gas chambers at Auschwitz. And many of the Jews who were imprisoned in Terezin were world-class musicians and composers. And one by one they arrived, and they left, some smuggling instruments, others carrying only enough defiance to face their fears. Among them was a celebrated young conductor, Raphael Schachter, who found himself in possession of one score, only one, the intensely complex and beautiful Catholic funeral mass, Verdi's Requiem. And so Schachter decided to teach and perform Verdi's Requiem with a variety of smuggled instruments and an ever-changing chorus. And they did. They sang. The community of Terezin tirelessly practiced and performed the Requiem more than 15 times. Historians marvel at the determination of Schachter, who kept rehearsing and performing even after the Nazis decimated his choir and orchestra over and over again. And people wondered, why did a group of Jews, why would they choose to perform a liturgy of the Catholic Church, the very symbol of those who were oppressing them? But those who were there, those who remember, they called it the defiant requiem. Later, one of the survivors recalled that their conductor, Schachter, told every chorus, we will sing to the Nazis what we cannot say. This is why tyrants, seeing the binding power of music, suppress the poets and the musicians who threaten their control of mind and heart. Whatever people can say with passion and heightened speech, they will end up singing in some form. When our language is used to move beyond just the mere giving of information, we come to the threshold of song. Like the old Quaker hymn asks, how can I keep from singing? There's something in us that prompts us for song. Quinn Caldwell writes that there are something like 5,400 animal species that make complex, intentional, repeatable musical vocalizations, which is to say that there are about 5,400 animal species that sing. The majority live in trees, a few live in oceans, a very few live underground. There's one, only one, singing species that lives on the ground. You guessed it, 
It's us. Humans are also the only singing species with a precise and shared sense of rhythm, he says. Which is a, this is what allows us to sing together. Two birds might sing the same song, but they can't coordinate it. They can sing next to each other, but not together. Another thing, if a room full of people sings at the same time, they start to breathe at the same time as well. And not only that, but studies have also shown that when people sing together, their hearts start beating together too. And if we're singing together and breathing together and our hearts are beating together, then it's, then it's like we're one body. And that's nice when you're at a stadium concert or whatever and, and all the fans are singing along with your favorite artist. But in the church, we make a bigger claim than just fans vibing together. No, we claim that we actually become the body of the one to whom we worship. And while we might not know much about redeeming the time, we worship the one who redeems. As Nadia Boltz Weber describes, the God who set the universe into motion through sound and self-giving in a love song that set it all into motion, saying, let there be light. It was in the image of this songwriter that we were created, and we too were given voice and language and breath and song. And that love song of creation continued. We tended to create our own melodies in another rhythm, in another key, in our own scale. Human-generated temporary alternate songs that we thought would save us. Songs of domination, violence, greed, and power. And so, once again, God's breath was given to us through sound and self-giving. Only this time, God's divine love song was heard in the cry of a newborn baby named Jesus. And Jesus, she says, was like a clearer set of lyrics so that we might be saved from the noise of sin and self-preservation, so that we might be reminded again of the true beat, the real rhythm, the clear lyrics of the song of creation and salvation that is life and that is eternal. Jesus' song interrupted the din of the Roman Empire and, and folks devise a plan to silence him once and for all on the cross. And as his body lay in the tomb and the hours ticked by, time should have done its usual job on him. It should have erased him the way the sea claims sandcastles. It should have worn him smooth. But because it did not ultimately defeat him, it does not ultimately defeat us. And through this divine love song, time is redeemed. And those who heard this tune began to sing it to others. And they wrote about it in the gospels and, and hymns. And we who are in this room, maybe for only a moment, a breath, a flicker, Hear it for ourselves. And we know it is life 
and it is here, and it has always been and always will be. The divine love song that calls us back to one another again and again and again. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together so that what we sing may be true for us. Does that make any sense? Let me explain. Being a pastor and preacher means that I've been to seminary, read the whole Bible, most of it, studied theology, I work in a church, and now I am a professional religious person. I know that, whether I like it or not. I get paid to lead people in the faith. But you know what? There are still moments when I find it so very hard to believe. And maybe that's been true at times for you. You know what I mean? That the gospel message that the God who created and still sustains the vast cosmos not only knows that we exist, but actually gives a hoot, deeply cares for us, our ups and downs, our our hopes and dreams, our accomplishments and our failures. And on any given day, that message can just feel like this close to being too good to be true. And so I come to church week in and week out, not only to hear the gospel read and preached, but also to sing it, so that in singing it, I might believe it. And what I sing will become true for me. Because here's the thing, sometimes those challenges, the hardships, the evils of the day that the apostle talks about, sometimes they feel like just too much. I don't know if I can make it. Then I find myself at church, and we're singing a hymn like, Let all things now living, a song of thanksgiving, to God our creator triumphantly raise, who fashioned and made us, protected and stayed us, by guiding us on to the end of our days. God's banners are o'er us. Pure light goes before us. A pillar of fire shining forth in the night till shadows have vanished, all fearfulness banished. As forward we travel from light into light. My goodness. And in that singing, it becomes true. For me, for you, suddenly I can believe and do and persevere. On Wednesday morning, we have a Bible study to discuss the upcoming scripture lesson, and so we had one this past Wednesday to discuss this one. And Bill Casey recalled the day that the church burned. Some of you were there and may remember it well. The local news picked up on the story pretty quickly, but word of mouth traveled just as quick. Bill said he got the phone call late that afternoon from a friend who who told him, Bill, your church is on fire. 
It's second only to having your home burn, your church, Bill said. Intuitively, he jumped in the car like so many others and rushed toward the church. Members were coming from everywhere, from home and work. It was sort of bedlam in a way, he said. We ran around trying to retrieve what we could from the parlor and the chapel, but it got too unsafe and the firefighters wouldn't let us back in. So gathering outside the church parking lot, not sure what to do, Reverend Scott McClure decided we need to sing. And so he began to lead that huddled mass in the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It's number 321 in your hymnals if you want to look at it. They sang as they clustered around the church they loved so much. They sang as dusk settled in. They sang as the flames were gradually put out. And we kept singing. Back into the greater song the world sang as it spun. God's song of what is real and true and everlasting. A song that is the movement of all reality. A song that is moving toward an outcome in which all our yesterdays, our lost moments and missed opportunities may be reclaimed, redeemed, and the one who we worship. You know, most other animals stop singing when danger approaches. But humans, at least those in this church, sing louder the closer the danger gets. We know what stalks us, and we won't let it shut us up. We sing together, and we become large. We become a body that does not back down. So come at us, predators. Come, loneliness, and we will sing to you, Emmanuel, God is with us. Come, death, and we will sing the strife is o'er, the battle done. Now is the victor's triumph won. Now is the song of praise begun. Alleluia. Come, racism and oppression, and we will lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Come fear, and we will sing, though hordes of devils fill the land, all threatening to devour us. We tremble not, unmoved we stand. They cannot overpower us. Were they to take our house, goods, fame, our child, spouse? Were even life wrenched away, still they cannot win the day. For God's kingdom is ours forever. Come despair, and we will sing joy to your world. Come sickness, and we will sing mast and all. Come, all ye faithful, and sing. Lord, I can't read music, and I can barely carry a tune in a bucket, but I'm going to sing your praises anyway. Yes, we sing. Yes, it's a scary time, evil, as the apostle says. Yes, these times are confusing and uncharted, but oh yes, they are redeemable. And as we enter a new season, I believe our church wants to redeem its time. 
We want to be whole. But how? The writer of Ephesians says we sing. Can you imagine for just a moment if this church began leading the world in song? During this time of turmoil and divisiveness, in a land where the most segregated hour in America is still on Sunday, in a time where listening is rare and voices only get louder and angrier, can you imagine gathering together to join our voices, to join our very lives in the face of all that is evil before us and sing, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died.